at High Fine Nation for Slate Plus. This is for the episode Police Discretion. Uh, and I'm joined today by Sara Lusbader. Sara, why don't you tell everybody who you are? Hi, my name is Sara. I am a lawyer. I'm currently senior legal counsel at the Justice Collaborative, and I'm a senior contributor at a publication called The Appeal. I write about criminal justice issues, drawing from my several years of experience as a public defender in the South Bronx. Good. And uh, just to let everybody know, we are recording and at the kind of height of the coronavirus pandemic. This will probably be released in a month, so we'll probably still be there. And you have fled New York City, correct? That's right. I am 37 weeks pregnant. And so my OB told me, you know, if you can leave the state, you probably should and give birth elsewhere. All right. Right. So I am going to just express right now that I hope people out there who are listening are listening because they uh, care about criminal justice. But, you know, I've been told who wants to hear about criminal justice during the era of uh, of the coronavirus. But of course, you have to write, you know, what is it, a column a week or maybe two? Yeah, I write two or three columns a week. Um, although it's funny that you say that because we worry about that, too. I, I, you know, if you ask me, someone who's focused on criminal justice, I think that there's a ton of overlap between uh, a pandemic and criminal justice. There are all sorts of lessons to be learned uh, that carry through about all of our fates being intertwined and uh, how it matters the way that we treat our most vulnerable. I think that right now Rikers Island has the highest infection rate in the world and it's higher than it was ever in Wuhan or in um, Italy. It's much higher than it is in New York City. Uh, Okay, let's talk about the um, police discretion episode now. What what did you, what was your take? What did you think about it? What, 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 What questions did you have? So I think the first thing that occurred to me when I was listening to it, for one thing, the, the thing that I think I liked the most about it was that you and Brandon Del Pozo in the episode were able to take the idea of what we would call, most people call low-level policing, and you give it a different name, and you, you say that it's it's malum prohibitum versus malum and say. I mean, first things first, I can't believe you forewent the opportunity to play a legally blonde clip. Um, that was a mistake. <laughs> but beyond that, that little flaw, um, I thought it was brilliant because what I hear so often as as a, an advocate for criminal justice and, and earlier as a public defender was was the language of letting people off easy. So in a sense, you're accepting that the people who happen to get arrested for whatever they get arrested for deserve it somehow. And if you don't do something wrong, you're not getting arrested. All of those things are are false. We know that they're false. And yet when you're in the position of defending somebody, even for a low level offense, all of the language is, well, should we let this guy off or not? Um, And and therefore you don't get even to be in that position of saying, oh, well, we'll forgive you for this low-level offense. It's not a question of forgiveness. You know, I think in that way, forgiveness ought to run the other way. Like the person who is arrested or the community that has sort of been terrorized by these low-level arrests for decades ought to be forgiving the government. I mean, it's 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 a point that we hear all the time in the criminal justice community, like things that, that white people get away with, that black people don't get away with, things that wealthier people get away with, low-income people don't. But it really bears some thinking about when you think about the the private school, high school kid who borrows Adderall from his friend. And th- there's no 
There's no intersection between him and the police. So he doesn't get arrested. He doesn't get the government doesn't get the opportunity to take it easy on him or not. Whereas, you know, a kid in a very different neighborhood uh, surrounded by drugs who does get arrested you know, we can say, oh, well, we're we're progressive. We're a progressive uh, prosecution officer. You know, we're a progressive police, so we'll let you off. Um, but why is the government even in the position of forgiving that second person? Is it forgiveness that they don't even enforce the law with regard to the first person? Like, I think we almost don't attribute the same moral uh, status to these to these two people. It's fascinating hearing a chief of police say this, right? Like, the right way to think about it is this person got caught for doing something bad, the right way to think about it is not, and also the cop didn't let them go like they did a hundred other people. The exercise of police discretion is not an exercise of forgiveness, right? It's it's like the the act of of doing the arrest is the thing that needs justification, right? It's not like right. like we are justified in doing the arrest, but I'm a nice guy, or you seem like the kind of person who I should let off. So like. That's a, a favor that the state is doing to you. I think the way that he, and right again, surprising that a police chief would say this, right? I think his way of looking at it is the duty is not to arrest. The duty is what is a way of dealing with something that's a social problem in front of you without arresting. If you then proceed to arrest, that needs a heavy burden of justification. And and again, it's for malum prohibitum crimes, right? It's like no moral content. If you can imagine a wealthy prep school kid doing it and you think, well, that's not moral or immoral, it's healthy or unhealthy, but either way, if you can think about it that way, then you think about all the street crimes that fit that, which most drug possession and drug use is, Right. Right. And I think that there's I think, you know, just from from my experience, I think that we can say that mom prohibitum crimes are not only enforced, but they're enforced, especially in low income communities at much, much higher rates than mom and say crimes. Yeah. And um, so this is sort of what I always would think to myself, um, which when I would just see just dozens and dozens of arrests come in for very low level things like trespass, drug possession, um, you know, these traffic, disorderly conduct, a lot of disorderly conduct, traffic stops. Um, so you do see a lot more enforcement of these kinds of offenses. I think the other thing that the other driving force behind the situation that we find ourselves in today is the connection to slavery and how uh, a lot of our criminal law and the enforcement of it, you can trace directly back to the slave codes, which then became the black codes. And what happened there, which many scholars have written about uh, far more eloquently than I'm about to explain it, but they're created in order to basically recreate conditions of slavery. So you have vagrancy laws that criminalize not having a job. Um, or just being on the street, and they were enforced against black people. Oh, sorry, if you're black, that's the that's the important part. So there's status crimes too. So, so I take it you were um, taken in quite a bit by Del Pozo's kind of views about um, the tests for the you know legitimate uses of arrest for malum prohibitum laws. But you know these the, this thing. Um, public reasons tests, right? Like, can this arrest satisfy public reason, which is these, even in philosophy for people who think about it, that's sort of a vague notion. What did you, what did you make of it? I guess I was thinking about it 
in theory. And in theory, it's great. It's the best test I could I could come up with. Um, I didn't really stop to imagine what it would look like in practice because I'm a little afraid to. Yeah. Um, because you have such a variety of people in law enforcement these days. You have apparently philosophers, you found them, um, which I didn't know. But, you you know, you also have people like um, some of these unions that you see, uh, police officers and sergeants unions that are unfortunately led by people who are totally fine admitting how racist they are and how they want to use the laws basically to promote white supremacy. So I don't trust them to share the values. And I think you say this toward the end of this episode, which is that, that you don't, you're not agnostic when it comes to what kind of state we ought to be promoting yeah. uh, when it comes to our policing. I think it was this episode. Um, and yeah, absolutely. It was. But I don't think that that view is shared by all or maybe even most law enforcement. So it would be hard to sort of superimpose, okay, this is the state we're going for, guys. So make sure all of your arrests comport with this idea of the kind of state that that we want to have, I found it. I found it compelling precisely because um, the view that, well, the what the cops who are saying the opposite were just enforcing the law, are in fact actually implementing some kind of state that they're a part of. It's it, you can't say that they're neutral. I didn't include this in the episode, but he thinks that it should be in. Like, I guess, so you're a lawyer, right? There's like a professional organization that's allowed to disbar you, but it's not like you'll get arrested. Is that true? That's true. Right? So he thinks it should be in the code of ethics of whatever it is, policing is the the ethical organization for police. Like in order to be uh, a police officer, you have to abide by a certain set of ethical codes. And he thinks like putting this there is the way to do it. Putting it like that your department that you as an individual will conduct public reasons tests for your arrests of malum prohibitum crimes, such that if you violate it and it's documented and all this other stuff, uh, then you could be disbarred in the same sense that you as a lawyer can be. I think that's a I think that's a great idea. I think that's fantastic because what we see so often, especially if you look at a doctrine um, like qualified immunity. So qualified immunity is the doctrine that says basically um Police can kind of do whatever they want when it comes to using force against civilians, except if it's so clearly outside the bounds of what is acceptable policing. Basically, anyone would think that uh, it was absolutely illegal. It means that police effectively can can do whatever they want. And a test like Del Pozo's that would actually just be professional about whether you're fit to be a police officer sounds actually a lot more appropriate to me. Professional liability. Is there such a thing in police as there is for lawyers? I think it's department by department. I could oh, be wrong. I think it's okay. so it's sort of like whether the department chooses to place them on administrative leave or to fire them. Mm-hmm. In some communities you have like a civilian complaint review board. Um so like New York has one. They're pretty toothless generally yeah. speaking. Yeah. Okay. But but you but you like the idea of a professional organization that has if if it's going to happen it's going to happen there. It's not going to be a constitutional amendment to conduct public reasons. It's just that's not realistic, right? I, I guess you're right that, and, and Del Pozo's right that if anything's realistic, it would be a professional um, standard. Yeah. Um, there was one other or two other things. I had a question for you. Um, sure. I had a philosophy question for you about this episode. The question is whether, you know, toward the end of the episode, you talk about how the public reasons test 
is sort of an anti-utilitarian test. And yeah, he thinks that. Yeah, right. Yes. The, and, and his yeah, idea yeah. is that uh, it's Rawlsian and it's anti-utilitarian. And in fact, you could use utilitarian arguments to say, especially in cases like terrorism cases. Well, you know, if we go around basically selectively violating people's rights, that in fact, we could save some lives. And in fact, we could weed out a terrorist here and there. And yes, that will come at the expense of not only a, a few people's personal experience, right? You'll you'll net people who are innocent uh, and mess mess with them, maybe ruin their lives. Um, but also it would come at the expense of the society that we would like to live in um, or the, the idea that we live in an equal society. I wonder, though, if you think that it actually is also consistent with utilitarianism. Because I think you can, I think I can make the argument that it is also utilitarian. Why, why, why don't you make that argument to me right now? Let me because, I mean, I think this is why people hate hate Mike Bloomberg and why be, stop and frisk became such a problem for him when he was running for president. It's that for some people, they think, oh, you were stopped and you were frisked and you were let go. What's the big deal? And the big deal is that it's not an equal society. At that point, when you're stopping people disproportionately, hundreds of thousands of people every year, mostly young black men, um, you're no longer living in an equal society. And and that's a public reasons test. Yes. But but when you think about all the people that didn't need to be stopped or even all the people that are arrested that don't need to be arrested, um, if you think about the greatest good for the greatest number, there has to be a more efficient way, for example, to get guns off the street, like some sort of social intervention beforehand. This is not a sort of morally efficient way to do it. It seems to me like you're actually causing a lot of pain that you don't need to be causing. Yeah, that might be right, Sarah. I think that if you're going to go the utilitarian route, then the arguments are always contingent on the particular numbers, right? And the particular numbers matter for, say, the population. What's the population of the, what's the minority population compared to the white population, right? And so uh, things like the public reasons test non-utilitarian arguments don't rest on any kind of contingencies like that. The thing about utilitarian is there's so much that's contingent on very, you might think, superficial features of of the kind of pain. So like the kind of pain that's caused. It's like, well, if you had, you know, 5,000 more white people who are never affected whatsoever by stop and frisk, maybe the numbers skew, skew the other way. That That's the kind of thing that people like Del Pozo, people like John, John Rawls, people who go with unequal society arguments, they say the moral wrongness comes from the inequality. If it turns out that you also have a utilitarian argument, you have just doubled the strength of your policy-based argument, right? But they don't want to rest the moral argument on the utilitarian case. More utilitarian-minded people, I think, who are skeptical about those kinds of basic principles, like Bloomberg is. I mean, generally, business people are utilitarians, right? Like, that's what they are. But if you want to make the moral case, how much do you want to rest it on the particular kinds of numbers? Like, if there's a less intrusive stop and frisk, put trackers on everybody who's black, Okay, that's a little less intrusive, right? But like, that's it seems much like the worse. wrongness is still wrong. <laughs> but what about, I mean, I think, I can't remember which episode you make this point in, which is true, which is that um, incarceration doesn't, usually doesn't last forever, thankfully for most people, doesn't inherently make you a better person. So 
if it's true that, in fact, they actually are breeding grounds uh, for all of the negative feelings that are associated with future violence, then what are you doing? You're taking a gun off the street, maybe, and ruining someone's life, maybe ruining their family's life and depriving the family of income and, and maybe making it more likely that that person goes on to commit crime or, or maybe their relatives uh, or their, their child who sees that their dad's in jail and uh, and it gets normalized for them. So there, it's just hard to measure, but it's theoretically measurable and possible that, in fact, you're creating more crime with these kinds of policies. You know, I'm I'm a prison abolitionist. I'm, you know, pretty anti-carceral. I don't really think we ought to be putting a lot more people in prison. I, I will say one other thing. This You didn't ask about this, but just um, that this episode reminded me of was Another reason that I really liked the distinction between Malum Prohibit and Malum and Say Crimes is that it reminded me of a time that I ran into a law school classmate of mine, a very like nice guy who happened to be a federal prosecutor. And I think, I can't remember, I think we were at like a religious service or something. And, you know, I think in a way prosecutors sometimes try to buddy up with you and say, hey, like you're a defender, I'm a prosecutor, we kind of do the same thing. And for me, it's like, no, we kind of do the opposite thing. And I I think I said something to him like, well, you know, maybe you'll remember some of this stuff like when when you're back at work um, putting poor people of color behind bars. And he said, yeah, I'll stop doing that when they stop breaking the law. And I just was like, like, I don't have the time and it's completely socially unacceptable for me to explain why you're completely wrong in your outlook but i think if he were to listen to this episode it might become clear why oh these guys are breaking the law is absolutely an insufficient reason to go ahead with a prosecution as people are going to see throughout this whole season these non-utilitarian versus utilitarian arguments are going to start pulling in different directions the reason for incarceration is one where I think non-utilitarian and utilitarian reasons are going to start pulling in opposite directions, right? So what you're saying is absolutely correct. Like over the long term, if you look at the harms that incarceration does to a society, I think you have a very good case. That's a utilitarian point. The same side of the coin that gives you something like a public reasons test and say, equality is fundamental as a principle who cares about the utilitarian one are going to be the same people whose moral principles are like punishment is a basic thing we need to do to people (laughs) it's just that's what they're going to say and we're going to have like a lot of discussion of that in the future of of the season right yes Uh, and from an advocate's perspective we're always sort of trying to get those utilitarian arguments out there it seems intuitively i think that that's the most persuasive to the general public but but your episode this episode made me me question that and made me want to weave some non-utilitarian arguments back into to that kind of writing thanks to chow too editor-in-chief for slate plus and noah mendoza good for editorial assistance for this slate plus episode We have invite-only Zoom events after every episode where we can extend the discussion and meet each other. Go to hifination.org to find out how to be invited. See you next week. 